Last year, I was preaching at a church in West Africa on a Sunday morning, and as the sermon started to get going, there was a guy about six rows in who starts pushing the people around him, and he's getting almost downright violent. People are watching this, and I'm wondering what I'm supposed to do because I'm, not, I'm barely used to an amen or a help him Jesus during a sermon in reform circles, let alone people getting this riled up in worship. He finally gets to the point where he's literally pushing the people around him. I turn to the pastor behind me and I say to him, what do I do? And he says, keep going. It's working. Through all the sermon classes I took in seminary, nobody ever told me that part of grading whether or not a sermon was good was how many demons you were ticking off in the room at the time. The demon began to manifest itself in this man, and the other pastor came and grabbed him and hauled him out the back, and he put his hand on him, and he began to cast out the demon in his life, and his life becomes transformed. I have never thought about those sorts of aspects of what's taking place in the middle of when you and I proclaim and when we live the power and the strength of a gospel that confronts the kingdom of darkness. In fact, in our own culture today, it's becoming increasingly foolish to consider the mighty deeds of Jesus or the fact that the demonic or spiritual realms play a significant role in our lives. It's for the simple-minded. Those of us who have great intellects, of course, can think our way around these things. Those just fill in the gaps. And yet to read Scripture on its own terms is to acknowledge that the Gospels tell us that this is the reality of what it is that we're dealing with. Ephesians 6, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When you woke up this morning, you probably thought your professors were the enemies. The principalities and powers. It's who we battle. It's like the writers of the Gospels are constantly telling us, take a look behind the curtain. See what's really going on. Don't just watch the smoke and mirrors show up front. Take a look behind. What's really at stake? This semester we're walking through the Gospel of Mark and we're looking at these mighty deeds of Jesus and what it is that they say about who he is and about what he says is taking place in the world. And Mark's Gospel in particular seems to have this fascination in the first nine chapters of just rapid fire, all these mighty deeds that Jesus is doing. In fact, in Mark's Gospel more than any other, Mark isn't even so much interested in the content of what Jesus is teaching as in what it does when he teaches. And so he talks about what's happening behind the scenes and what is coming to the forefront because of what is taking place. And you could categorize the mighty deeds that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark or in all the other Gospels really into three distinct categories. There are the nature miracles, the walking on water, the calming the storm, the feeding the 5,000. Then, of course, there's the healings, eyesight restored, the paralytic that walks, And this is this third category, and I think this is the most troubling for a Western audience, the exorcisms. And yet that's where Mark starts this whole gospel with stories that focus in there before all else. 
In fact, in what we're going to read in the first kind of 24-hour description of what's taking place of a day in the life of the kingdom of Jesus coming in, three distinct references to the authority in casting out of demons occurs. Now, I've heard a lot of arguments in our own time that, you know, when, when we see these stories now, we sort of understand medically a little bit better that probably what's really going on is these are cases of mental illness. And yet the gospel writers themselves go to great lengths to explain to us that there's a distinct difference between a healing miracle and a casting out of a demon. In fact, Jesus himself recognizes that he is de- dealing with a distinct and different personality and power and being altogether when he's casting out a demon versus when he is healing somebody. So we pick up the story. We read last week the beginning of Mark's gospel, and since then in between, John the Baptist has been put in prison, and Jesus is beginning to call the first disciples. And now here we are in Mark 1, 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, Because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went looking for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. It's interesting as you begin to read each of the Gospels, the, the literary genius that's taking place and how, how their entire books are constructed. There's a message that they're trying to convey about the perspective that they have on the person of Jesus, even in the arrangement of their stories or in the literary arrangement of their Gospel. One of the unique aspects of Mark's Gospel is that it's arranged geographically. Jesus starts in Galilee and and the first six chapters, and then in six to eight, he moves kind of around the Decapolis, and then in eight to ten, he's in this on-the-way movement towards Jerusalem, and then the last few chapters all happen in Jerusalem, mimicking a coronation ceremony that a Caesar would receive. And just all these layers that are taking place, all these things that they want us to see, 
I have never entered into an evangelistic conversation with someone and started with a story about demons. But that's what, that's what, Jesus, that's what Mark does and how he describes Jesus' ministry. You heard the references three times in this first 24-hour period, and then he cast out demons. He cast out many demons, and he had authority over demons. So why is this so significant, and why does Mark lead with this in his understanding of Jesus? It says at the beginning that Jesus goes into the Sabbath, into a, on the Sabbath into a synagogue in the city of Capernaum. Now, according to Old Testament law and custom, the Jerusalem temple was where everyone went by compulsion, by law, a few different times of year on pilgrimage for the major festivals. But on a regular Sabbath, you would gather in a synagogue. Jewish law stated that wherever 10 men lived, a synagogue would be constructed so they would have a place of weekly worship. And in that place, it was the laity who would take turns teaching. If you were a man who had come of age and demonstrated a certain knowledge of the scriptures, you too would take your turn teaching one another. So obviously, in between the lines, we can read into this story that Jesus has become known in his community. He's respected as a bit of a teacher, and so he is given the pulpit on this Sabbath day. And he's in the city of Capernaum. Now, we know historically the city of Capernaum at this point in time in history had at least 10,000 people living there. And unlike our communities today, they don't fan out in a lot of different places. There wasn't the first Reformed synagogue of Capernaum and the second Protestant Reformed synagogue of Capernaum. And they didn't fraction and splinter off like this, like we do. There was one place. So what Jesus had was a massive crowd watching this all go down. And notice what Mark wants us to see, of course, in the passage, what stands out for him in the city of Capernaum on the Sabbath day in the synagogue where Jesus begins to teach. It's his authority that stands out. This word exousia becomes this important word throughout Mark's gospel. It's used at least six different times to talk about the unique authority that Jesus had. Three times Jesus uses the same word in terms of what he describes he is giving to the disciples. That same authority that Jesus has in the Gospels. That same ability to enact miracles. That same ability to cast out demons and claim authority over the kingdoms of darkness. Jesus says, I put on you. I put on you. I put on you. That kind of authority. Now, within an exousia authority type of thing, there's two different kinds that exist in Jewish tradition. There's the kind of authority that you would have in order to, that took place most Sundays in a synagogue for a teacher to come up and you would recite the traditions. Most of this is from memorization. You recited the scriptures. You talked about what the rabbis who've come before have said. You talked about the prophets. But every once in a while, every so many hundreds of years, a new rabbi would come along who had something referred to as shmika. It was a different level of authority, not a better one, an altogether different category. Even the grammar in the way this passage is constructed tells us this is not a better or a slightly kind of increased amount of authority. It's an authority of an altogether different kind. This is the kind of authority that a teacher would have if he would say something like, you've heard it said, but now I say to you, there's a certain audacity to this kind of authority. But Jesus' word and deed always come together. His word is his deed and his deed is, is his word. He does this in the way he teaches parables. He does it when he enacts his ministry through healing. Word and deed, word and deed. Teaching us that the same authority through us is going to look like his. And it's this authority that provokes the demon that day in the worship 
And the reader, I think Mark wants to be asking themselves several different questions at this point in time. In in the Jewish world, there's two categories of everybody and everything at all points in time. You are either clean or unclean. A food is kosher or it's not. You either get to go into worship or you don't. You are clean or unclean. Very binary thinking, okay? Often, demons are described as unclean spirits because if somebody had one, you were not exactly allowed into a worship space. What's interesting in Mark's gospel is that six different times we find demons in synagogues. What on earth are the people doing when we can't even tell that a demon has such a great hold of somebody's life and our worship is so innocuous, it's so blasé that we can't even tick off a demon when we're worshiping God? Like, how impotent is our worship in that setting? It's not even offensive. A demon shows up in a church and isn't even ticked off. Something's wrong in the way things are being done. And maybe ask questions about how we worship. What's taking place in our hearts or the ways that we sing? Do we understand what's taking place when we gather like this as a community? There is supposed to be a serious offense taking place to the kingdom of darkness because of what this community is doing together in this moment. There are strongholds, there are risks to the kingdom of darkness because of what you are putting yourself in front of when you put yourself in front of the word, when you sing out, when you use the breaths that you've been given to give glory to the one who breathed it into you. All of those are affronts to the kingdom of darkness. And do we understand that that's really what's taking place when we gather and when we worship? That is not an innocuous time spent together, an impotent, unoffensive time. I'm hoping the kingdom of darkness is terrified by what's happening inside of you right now. The gospel of Jesus demands a response. And Jesus is telling us that what he is giving us in this is an authority. We stand 2,000 years on the other side of the resurrection. And now because of that moment, there is an authority that is within you. And the same kind of authority that Jesus had. Demons have questions too. Demons apparently have the same kind of questions of spiritual warfare that you and I do. This demon does in the passage. He asks Jesus the questions. What do you want with us? Literally, what is it to you and to us? A line that this demon actually takes that is found word for word three different times in the Old Testament. This demon knows his Bible and he knows it well. You see, because if I was going to fight an enemy and if I was going to be any good on a, on a battlefield or if I was going to be any good even in an athletic contest, what I would do is I would scope out the opposition and I would figure out their weaknesses and I would exploit those and I would go after them. You see, the kingdom of darkness doesn't just watch what you're doing here on a Wednesday morning or on a Sunday morning for 75 minutes in a building of brick and stained glass. See, if I was planning an attack on your life, I would watch your places of weakness when nobody else can see you. I wouldn't just look for the easy, overt, and obvious on the outside. I'd peek behind the curtain. I'd study it all. The demonic realm seems to know Scripture incredibly well. What is it to you and us? What do you want with us? Maybe another way to paraphrase it, why are you interfering with us. And notice the first person plural, us. 
This demon knows full well that while he is the one in worship, there is a lot more at stake than just him in this moment. Because he acknowledges who it is that he stands in front of. And the degree of the authority that is found in Jesus. Have you come to destroy us? An immortal being, fearful of its very existence because of the authority that is coming before it in Christ. It's really not much of a question if you consider what's stated in the next line because the demon blurts out exactly who he knows. I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. You see, there's sort of this idea, and already was at this point in time in, in, the, in the field of exorcism, that if you could name the opponent, if you could figure out a name, you'd have a level of authority over it. But Jesus doesn't work by formulas. And he doesn't work by superstitions. And there's no how-to handbook. So many times I hear Christians talk about things like spiritual warfare, and I hear a lot of people begin to sound like they're very superstitious. Your authority does not lie in the way that you repeat things or a little incantation of words. Your authority lies in the fact that someone came through the grave and then says, and I share this with you now. Do we understand how powerful we are in Christ? One of Satan's greatest lies and tools in our lives is he's convincing you again and again and again that the resurrection of Christ is not at work to the extent that it really is in your life. That this authority is reserved for these pages of Scripture and not for you and for me. That is a bald-faced lie. This authority is your authority. And the crowds are amazed, of course, when they see this, right, at Jesus' teaching and his authority. And notice what crowds always do. Crowds are, are dazzled by the fantastic. They're amazed at his teaching and his authority, not at the fact that the demon just said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They're not fascinated by Jesus' identity. They're not fascinated by what they're supposed to be fascinated by. They're fascinated by the spectacle. How many times do you and I not enter into worship into the same thing as consumers in this culture come into church with the same mentality where we're fascinated by the spectacle we go home afterwards, and what do our conversations sound like? I really liked it when they played that song. That was a funny joke the pastor told. What about the other stuff? Like, if you, if you could pull back the curtain and see what's taking place inside of our hearts in that moment. I'm so afraid that what we do on Sunday mornings is we get all dressed up and we play church like a kid plays dress-up. When all the while, the realities that stand behind it are so much more significant. And can we talk about those, please? Because that's really what it's all about. That's what Jesus is revealing in these stories. He's pulling the curtain back and saying, this is what's really mattering. This is what's really taking place. I know you can put on a show for your friends. I know you can dress up nice on a Sunday morning. But do I have your heart? Do you trust me? Do you understand what I've done for you and that I want to give this to you? I want to share it with you. And these same strongholds, that create opposition and opportunity for the evil one to put forces in your life that hold you back. I want those gone. I'm coming to bind the strong man. I am coming to set you free. One of the translations I read that described the demonic influence in, in someone's life was describing it in the same way that we're under the influence of alcohol when we drink a whole lot. Like under the influence of a spirit. Now that was a great way to describe it. 
under the influence of. You and I have places still in our lives where we are under the influence of lies. You and I have places and voices where we have given a certain authority to demons that speak into our lives and tell us lies. And they need to be called out. Because if we want to enjoy and participate in the power that Christ offers, we need to understand the authority that really is ours. Because fascination is not discipleship. A couple of years ago, a pastor in America by the name of Kyle Eidelman wrote a great book called Not a Fan. And it talks about the fact that it looks at how so much of what we've done in America with the church today is, is looked at the life of Jesus like we're a fan in the same way we worship a rock star. We're not called to be fans of Jesus. We're called to be disciples of Jesus. Because you don't go to a rock concert, watch somebody up in front, and he's not saying to you the whole time, you can do what I'm doing. You can do what I'm doing. But this is what Jesus says. You can do and you will do what I am doing because of what I have done. That exousia, that's what I'm giving you. So at the end of the day, Maybe the real smoke and mirror show isn't the fancy clothes you put on when you go to worship or the rituals that we walk through. Maybe the real smoke and mirror show that's got to get called out is the one of the evil one telling us that he has more authority than he really does. This is an army of light that is being amassed to call out the lies of the evil one and remind the world that there is one who is in control and he's taking it all back. And every stronghold that has ever been given, every lie that has ever been told, every life that has ever been taken is going to be reclaimed by the one who holds all things and says, I'm going to do this and I will do it for you. And I already have. The smoke and mirror show is the one last gasp of dying breath that the kingdom of darkness is showing us when we look around and see the perils of the world around us. Because more and more people are coming to Christ. More and more people are coming under his lordship and his reign is extending as his kingdom breaks in. And the question for you is not, do I want to obey this God, but how much of his kingdom do I want to taste in the eternity already now is the question you must ask. This is the movement. This is what you're being called to. From 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Isn't that incredible? Consider what is ours. Cast out the lies. Join me in prayer. Father, we recognize this morning that there is an authority that has come in your Son that we have not fully recognized. That we have not stood in front of with awe long enough. That we have not contemplated deep enough. That we have not let translate into action fully enough in our lives. Father, change us. Make us new.
And we ask this morning that your truth would cast out the lies that we have been told. Help us to understand that we are in Christ more powerful than we could ever imagine. Not by anything that we have done, Lord, but what you have done through the work of your Son and now conferred it upon us. For every conviction that has taken place in this room this morning by the work of your Spirit, for places where strongholds and lies need to die, Father, we claim those in Jesus' name. Father, set us free from the tyranny of the great liar, of the deception that he holds in front of us. Help us to live in such a way, Lord, that we pull back the curtain and see what is really taking place. That your victory is being shared with us. Father, let it come out in our words and in our deeds and may we be consistent. Father, change us from the inside out. And may every day that we live, we grow in awareness, Father, of that all of these breaths are yours and for your glory. Father, thank you for making us victorious in Christ. Cast out our fears. Rebuke the lies. In Jesus' name, amen. We stand and receive a blessing going into the rest of your day. Beloved of Jesus Christ, you are why he came. You are why he died. You are why he rose again. And the same authority that he was given through those movements, he has conferred upon you. Live as children of a reigning kingdom. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.